You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 10, the verses 1 to 18. We've chosen to read John 10 because it speaks about the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, a relationship that we're also going to look at in light of Lord's Day 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So John 10, let us listen together to the word of our God. I tell you the truth, and here the Lord Jesus is speaking, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. I preach to you this afternoon from the Word of our God, as you can find that, and the Church confesses it in Lord's Day 21, the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 54. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by spirit and word in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. 
Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, when some topics, subjects, or issues are raised, they attract very little attention. Not too many people know anything about Chalk River's nuclear isotopes, or Toronto's electric grid problems, or Abbotsford's aquifers. Talk among us about such things, as well as related things, is soon over and is left up to the experts. But then there are other things that we have no problem talking about almost endlessly. And probably chief among them is the topic of people. How we love to talk about people. It makes everyone's ears perk up and somehow attracts everyone's attention. And here there is no loss of words nor shortage of opinions either. We all consider ourselves experts when it comes to people. Other people, that is. But nevertheless, while talking about people may be one of our most popular pastimes, it's not the only one. There are others, and among those others, there is also the church. And indeed, you might ask, when has the church not been a hot topic? Go back to the Old Testament, the New Testament, the early century church, the medieval church, the Reformation church, and so on. Why, for centuries, at least in the Western world, it's been a core subject giving rise to endless reflection, countless books, and an avalanche of words. And what kind of words? Well, I grant you that some of them have been nice, constructive, and upbuilding, but a lot of them have also been negative, critical, and grumpy. And the latter is, I might dare say, the case often today. Over the last number of years, whether you realize it or not, a large number of books have been written by evangelical authors questioning the church and its relevance. And these authors now are insisting that you can get spirituality without religion, relationships without rules, and God without church. Indeed, one of the latest mantras is, we want God, not church. Or, we want a churchless Christianity. Well, in light of those developments, and in connection with Lord's Day 21 of the Catechism, it's pertinent that we ask ourselves this question. Who still needs the church? And there's a few possibilities. You don't, say the critics. I do, says the Lord. And we do, say its members. So who still needs the church? As mentioned a moment ago, recently any number of evangelical critics have arisen saying that the church that we have always known is no longer working or needed today. So what's the problem? Or as the young people would say, what's the beef? Well, 
In some ways, it's kind of difficult to summarize, but you could put it in three or four different categories. You might say the first area of complaint is functional, and in this connection, the critics claim that the church is no longer functioning as it should. In other words, it's not growing. Conversions are few, people are walking away, buildings are being closed and shut down, and as well, communities are no longer being transformed. The worship services do not track gobs of people. The sermons are dull and boring. The music is trite and endlessly repetitious. In short, the church is not functioning or working anymore as it should. The second area that the critics bring to the fore has to do with the personal. Quite simply, there's also this complaint that the church is filled with far too many lousy people. Cold, judgmental, women-hating, anti-gay, hypocritical people. Especially outsiders like to make some of those points. But, you know, it's not just the outsiders. Also, sometimes those inside the church can be heard to complain that the church is harsh and legalistic, overly judgmental. And then added to that is also the fact what's being said about any number of church leaders, that they're phony, womanizers, and money-grubbing egotists. Well, the third area of complaint is the historical. I'm going to save the fourth one for another time. But the third area of complaint is historical. And here the idea is that the church has lost touch with its roots. Buildings, clergy, liturgies, organs, choirs, bands are all symptomatic of an institutionalized and over-organized church life. Christians need to go back to simplicity, to the apostolic times and to the original church. They need to dismiss the influence of of Greek philosophy. They need to give the Emperor Constantine a good boot. They need to apologize for any number of atrocities. And let's start with the Crusades. Now, beloved, those are only some of the criticisms. And there are more. And as a matter of fact, that there are so many more that after a while, we may be inclined to lean in the direction of the critics and and say to ourselves, well, maybe they're right. Maybe we should just give up on church as we know it and either start over again or forget about it altogether. So think about that moment. Is the church a lost cause in the 21st century? Now, I would say to you that from a human perspective, the church has always been a lost cause. It's always had its failings and failures. There's always something to criticize or something to harp and carp about. After all, the church is made up of people. And what are people but sinful, imperfect, 
and flawed creatures. You see, the church has always been a work in progress, and it will continue to be a work in progress, at least in this life. So get used to it. If you're looking for the perfect church, I wish you the best. But I guarantee you, you will not find it. You'll be like that minister who preached about perfection for his church every Sunday. He preached and he preached, and as he preached, slowly the the pews got emptier and emptier. And on one particular Sunday, the only person left in the church was his wife. And after the service, because they had a service, she conveniently and sarcastically said to him, well, you finally made it. You finally have the perfect church. He then looked her in the eye and he said, not quite. A joke? A true story? I'm not sure, but I think you you get the point. There is no perfect church to be found on the face of the earth. Unless, of course, you think you are it. So is all hopeless? Well, humanly speaking, it is. But you know, this afternoon we are reminded that we as human beings are not the only ones that are speaking here. Someone else is speaking as well. And I dare say someone who knows a lot more, looks a lot deeper, and has worked a lot harder. And who is speaking? Well, Jesus Christ is speaking. He's speaking about his church. So don't just listen to the critics but also listen to Jesus Christ. Well, all right, then you say, but what is Jesus Christ saying? Well, beloved, turn, for example, to Matthew 16, verse 18, and listen to these few words. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. Those are the very words of Christ. And indeed, with these words, he is telling us that fundamentally it is not we as people who are building the church. Of course, we may think it's all about us, about our efforts, our work, our cooperation, our donations, but that's just plain wrong. When we're talking about the church, we're fundamentally talking about something that only Christ can build. To Peter and to the other apostles as well as to us, he says, I will build it. Not you, not anyone else. I'm the one who came up with the idea. I am the one who makes it happen. And I am the one who will see it through. And you know how right he is. 
The Heidelberg Catechism looks back over centuries to the beginning of time, and it looks forward to the end of time. And what does it say? The Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself a church. Notice the verbs, the action words. Who's doing the gathering? Who's doing the defending? Who's doing the preserving? Why is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Now, the keeners among us will have noticed that in quoting the words of Christ in Matthew 16, I left out some words. The full sentence is this, on this rock, I will build my church. What rock? Why, you can say the rock that forms the foundation of the church So so what is that rock on which Christ builds his church? Well, it's this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The rock is not Peter. It's not his person. It's his confession about a certain person. Christ builds his church on the confession that he is really and truly the Son of God. And this Son builds the church. He's the one who gathers, defends, and preserves it. Oh, and if you're looking for further proof of that, you can turn, for example, to John chapter 10 where the Son of God identifies himself, this time, with a shepherd. Now, what do shepherds do? Well, they gather the sheep together. And and so Christ says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep, and I must bring them also. I have to bring them in. And shepherds also defend their sheep, and Christ does this to the extreme when he says in verse 15, I lay down my life. For the sheep. And shepherds also preserve their sheep. And in that regard, Christ says, I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one shall ever snatch them out of my hand. So, beloved, before, before you hop on the bandwagon of the critics, take stock. Realize whose work you're attacking. Realize who you're ultimately talking about. Realize who is and who becomes the real object of your scorn. For the church is Christ building. It's Christ's flock. And as he says elsewhere, the church is my body and my bride. Christ and the church, you can't split them up and pick or choose one or the other. Why, I would even dare to say that, in a sense, Christ needs the church. 
Now understand me rightly, he doesn't need the church to care for him, to feed him, to stroke him, to flatter him or to support him. But he he does need the church if he's going to be the head of the body and the bridegroom of the bride. What's good's a body without a head? What use is a bride without a bridegroom? And so the critics may dismiss the church as unnecessary. But that's not the view of Christ. That's not the way he ever spoke. He says to the church, you need me, I need you. You need me to defend, preserve, and gather you. I need you as the crown of my saving work and as the bride for whom I've given my life. Biblically speaking, we can no more imagine the church without Christ as we can Christ without the church. These two are intimately and intricately woven together in the great plan of God. And now that, beloved, should make us cautious whenever someone cuts up the church I think it should cause us to be on our guard to think and to reflect as well as to study and discern. And when we do, we shall see that with respect to the function of the church, it's of course true the church may not exactly be growing in our western part of the world, but I dare say elsewhere, it's a rather and radically different kind of story. And there's surely evidence that the church has not totally lost its missionary focus. And and if that were the case, for example, we wouldn't be bothering with VBS, with radio broadcasting, literature distribution, coffee break and story hour, much less with Brazil, China or Mexico. And at the same time, it's also true that our worship services are not the most exciting show in town. But is that the standard? Is excitement the norm, the aim, the goal of our worship services? Is biblical worship all about numbers and decibels? You know, biblically, theologically, historically, that is never... I mean, the aim of the church. The aim of our services is to bring praise, honor, and glory to the living God. It's first and foremost about his name and his kingdom and his gospel and his will and his word. If you want to be entertained, go to a hockey game, a football game, watch the World Cup. But if you want to exalt the God of all the earth, then come and worship. Oh, and as you worship, then also be careful that you don't idolize the early New Testament church. 
You know, that's what quite a number of so-called historical critics are doing these days. And if you listen to them, you would think that the first century church got it all right. And that ever since then, we've been getting it all horribly wrong. But think about it. What an oversimplification. You know, we'll just pretend that Ananias and Sapphira never happened in the book of Acts. We'll just ignore all those stern words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. We'll not mention the fact that the Apostle Paul wrote some blistering words to the Galatians about preaching another gospel. And we'll not pay any attention to the fact that those early churches of Ephesus, Pergamon, Thyatira, and Laodicea had their share of problems. You say, beloved, the church then wasn't perfect. And neither was the church thereafter, or the medieval church, or even the Reformation church. It's always needed the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse it. To scrub it clean. And it still does. Of course, there's a sense in which Christ may need the church, but we, beloved, need it a lot, lot more than ever he does. And do we as church members still see that? Are we still convinced of that? Are we yet prepared to say we need the church? Optional, obsolete, necessary? As I mentioned earlier, there are people who turn their back on the church because they can't deal with the personal stuff. I would say part of that problem is that they have a wrong view of the church, as if this is somehow the perfect community of God upon the earth. I wish it were, but then I also know I'd be unemployed. Part of the view is also that they have a wrong view of human nature, as if believers never stumble, fall, or mess up. And another part of the problem is that they have a wrong view of themselves. As if they don't do a lot of the same things that they accuse other people of doing. Now, all of that's not an argument for the status quo or for ignoring each and every problem. But you know, it is an argument for some biblical realism when it comes to the church and its members. Of course, from time to time, believers can be accused of being cold, indifferent, hard, even callous. But what's the corrective to that? I'm out of here. I would say to you, the biblical corrective to that is, I'm going to set a better example in my own life. And witness. And I'm going to pray for all of those hard-nosed fellow believers that I know. And I'm going to ask God that through the preaching of the gospel, He'll melt their hearts. You see, the church needs us. And we need the church. 
And that's also what the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism saw so clearly. If they hadn't seen it, they wouldn't have attached that last part to answer 54, which reads, And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. Does that sound like a church quitter to you? Does that come across to you as someone who's waffling or or plucking a four-leaf clover? I'm staying, I'm leaving, I'm staying, I'm leaving. To me, it sounds like someone who's committed. To a person who believes that that thanks to the grace of Almighty God, that that he or she is a member of the church, that they counted a privilege. Blessing, a privilege, a gift. And that person hopes and prays and intends to remain a member forever. And then not just any member, but a living member. And what's a living member? It's not a nice member. Of course, we like nice members, but it's not a nice member. It's not a a busy member, even though we like members to be busy. It's not even a knowledgeable member, even though we want all the members to be very knowledgeable about the gospel and the confessions. But more than anything else, it's a member who by faith is united to Jesus Christ. Only branches live if they are in the vine. And we only get to live as long as we're in Christ. Then we'll live and we'll thrive and we'll be the kind of members that praise God every day and seek with many shortcomings to be a blessing and a help and a support to others. So who needs the church? At bottom, we all do. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.